This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 17. Episode 1. This is Writing Excuses. Genre and media are promises. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Kayla. I'm Sandra. And I'm Meg. And I'm here to tell you that if your romance novel doesn't have happily ever after or happy at least for now, it's not a romance novel. You're not actually writing to that genre. It's a bold stake in the ground, I know, but there are promises that the genres in which we write, the the bookshelf genres in which our publishers place our books, the elemental genres in which... Uh, you know, we determine what's the thing that makes people turn pages. Those make promises uh, right from the outset. Let's talk about some examples. I've already spilled the easy one of, of romance. What are some other examples of genres and the promises those genres make? Uh, cozy mystery is extremely like there are very, very strict beats to hit and moments to deliver that if you do not, you will have disappointed your audience. Because I don't they, know what those are. Can, can you enumerate uh, Ms. a few? Marple, Miss Marple or, you know, any uh, murder she wrote is a cozy mystery. It is basically a very friendly, there's going to be a murder. Somebody's going to die, but it's oh, not fun. somebody we, like, yeah. Um, and so, like, it's murder she wrote. She is going about her cozy little life and then, oh, no, there's a body. And we now need to solve it um, without, you know, upending too many people's worlds. And then at the end, it's all okay again. And and you can see this with uh, a lot of BBC, you know, villain. Father, Father Brown, Brown is one of them. Yeah, Father Brown um, is one of them. It is very contained and very safe, even though every single book or episode has a couple of murders in it. Um, and yet the audience knows at the end of it, the bad guys are caught, they're put out of the way, everybody's safe, it's all going to be fine. If there's a cat or a dog, the cat and dog are always going to be safe and probably will help solve the mystery. And so, like, <laughs> seriously, this is, this is the cozy mystery genre. And the people who come to this genre... Well, it's kind of like Meg was talking about in the last last episode with police procedurals. You are expecting and wanting to hit those beats exactly where you expect them. And if you don't, you will actually make the audience anxious and upset with you. <laughs> I have an example of when I was deeply betrayed by a cozy mystery series. Uh, I don't want to drop the title because this is a huge spoiler um, but there is a main detective character that the audience loves and cares about very much. And about three seasons in, decided he didn't want to do the show anymore. And instead of having him retire, they killed him. And the next person to come in and solve his murder was the new main character. And I was like, no! Yeah, it was, I'll go ahead and spoil it. Was that Death in Paradise? Yes! The BBC, yeah. So not over it. Yeah. That was yep. awful. 
But see, I mean, that's, you know, there's an expectation that just shows up with the genre. I came to a cozy mystery because I wanted a mystery and I wanted to be able to feel smart and solve the puzzle, but I never want to feel threatened and I never want my favorite characters to feel threatened. I just want to hang out with fun people while we solve puzzles. (laughs) Yep. Okay, let's let's uh, pick another pick another genre. Uh, Kayla, you got something for us? Yes, superheroes. Yeah, um, and how it means fights, epic fights. Like you can use all kinds of different structures in superhero movies, in comics, and things like that. As we have seen through Marvel's um, explorations, everything from a heist to like more of a drama to a classic hero's journey. Um, but we want epic fights that that feel like they have weight. They're not just like that. I think that's one of the things that sets apart well, a satisfying. And, and it's not just, and we see this in, uh, we see this in the, uh, was it 2013 Avengers movie? That would um, be it's, not just fights, it's the fight brackets, the, mm-hmm. the, the bracketing of, we need to see what happens when it's Thor versus Hulk. We need to see Black Widow versus Hulk. We need to see, you know, through the series, we get Iron Man versus Hulk. Eventually, we bracket so that everybody fights everybody else, even if they're on the same team. They have they have to have some sort of reason to fight. Black Widow fought um, fought Hawkeye. Uh, Hawkeye briefly fought Loki. Um, and and so yeah, you look at the superhero genre, and one of the expectations there is, man, I've got I got six superheroes here. Well, I want to know what happens if Hero Three and Hero Four fight because that would be cool. Um, and if you solve yeah. this by giving villains, you know, mirrored powers, then it's just boring. Then it's just <laughs> Iron Man 1, which is Iron Man versus a chonkier Iron Man, or uh, the Hulk movie from the same year, which was Hulk versus a spikier, chonkier Hulk. Um Mega uh, those kind of broke the promise. So yeah, superhero yeah. and the yeah. fighting. Um, what else? And and then you even build a whole movie around it with Civil War, where there, yeah. I mean, there is an external bad guy, of course, but the big scene, the big Act Three scene, was everybody in the airport parking lot, and how do these powers go against these powers, or these accessories interact with these magical things? And right. can I just say that that is the like one of the perfect re- like ways that audience has um, has helped cultivate or helped shape the genre as well the way that the audience interacts with it because like I remember having fights with people about who would beat who with your favorite superhero I'm like oh uh, Spider Man could beat any of them because of his Spidey sense you know <laughs> you end up fighting about it and that's that's like you want to see how your favorite superhero is going to fare it's kind of like wrestling right you know like the the professional wrestling you want to see what the matchups look like as well so it's a part of the genre because it's also part of what the audience wants to know they want to see how it goes so you're like okay well let's make this interesting let's you know let's keep doing this let's keep adding it in What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, hey, let's, uh, let's do a book of the week. Um, who's got that for us? I believe that I do. Yes, I do. Um, the book I'm super excited about uh, right now is Mine by Delilah Dawson. Um, we haven't actually talked about horror as a genre yet uh, and the expectations there, but this is a middle grade horror novel and, um, and it does a beautiful job of, of using horror tropes, uh, pitching them appropriately to a 12 to 13 year old audience, or even just a little bit younger than that, letting it be just scary enough for, for that age range and, and delivering the beats and points. Um, and it's, it's just, it's a delightful story and, and I highly recommend it. So, uh, mine by Delilah Dawson. Very cool. Yes. Very cool. Um, so we've talked about, we've talked about genre. Let's talk about mediums, media a little bit, because, um, the kinds of stories you tell change dramatically, uh, based on what the tools are you're using to tell them, whether it's a novel or a comic or a uh, film and TV. <laughs> what you got yeah. for us, Meg? Hi, my name's Meg and I want to talk about animation. Uh, there is this deep set conviction, uh, especially in American audiences, that if something is animated, it's just for children, um, which can be a problem because there are many animated projects that are not made for children that some unsuspecting parents may see in the video rental store and say, Watership Down, Rabbits, animated? That's for my four-year-old. <laughs> it was not. No. Um, and what's been so exciting is in the last three or four years- Is that why you became an animator? Was to save all the rabbits? <laughs> no, no, it was to kill all the rabbits and then show the grown-ups only. No, uh, I became an animator because I think it is- every single art form combined into one in the absolute coolest way. Um, but until very recently, um, most animated productions in the U.S. were either made for kids, kids serialized action adventure, or very raunchy uh, comedy for grownups. Because to make sure we know it's for grownups, we have to turn all the grownup content to the extreme. Um but there's a lot of international work, particularly anime from Japan, which um, targets many different audiences. And so we're seeing a lot of creators who grew up watching those kind of stories, wanting to branch out and basically get as many different types of stories in animation as you get stories in books and traditional publishing. And it's very fun to be part of that shift. So now part of what you've said here is that there's there's an incorrect expectation in the United States that the animation animation as a medium means the story is for kids. Um, specifically, though, are there promises that animation makes about the way it's going to tell a story? For instance, like with a novel, there's a thing that novels can do that almost nobody else can do well, and that's the third-person limited point of view, which is that 
Um, I am narrating the story from the point of view of the character who we are following around right now, and we're getting their thoughts. We're getting this internal stuff. You can't do that in film. Well, Dune, the David Lynch version, tried to do it <laughs> with people keep kept whispering these voiceovers, and that almost worked. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, almost. It almost worked. Uh, what is it that animation does that other things can't do that becomes an expectation of animation? How it looks. The actual design of the characters often indicates the type of story you're going to get. Usually stuff for kids, bigger heads, bigger eyes, and stuff for grownups, smaller heads, smaller eyes. That's a very gross oversimplification. Um, but you'll see a lot of adult comedies take a lot of design cues from shows like The Simpsons with large eyes but tiny pupils, which is, yeah. uh, I think, Sandra. I was going to say, um, I think it's on Netflix, Centaur World is actually <gasps> does some very beautiful things visually to indicate character growth. The, the visual design of the main character actually changes as the story progresses. And so you can actually see how far along their character arc they are by how they look on the screen. And, and that is a beautiful thing that animation can do. And it's an expectation that I would love to see more animation shows taking advantage of. Obviously they can't quite do it in the same way that Centaur World is set up to do, but but this is the kind of, of expectation is that with, with a, a visual medium, some of the story has to be delivered visually. You see this with picture books as well. Um, I'm doing a lot of, uh, of learning and writing picture books. And over and over again, as a writer of short stories and prose, I'm told you're describing too much. You're describing too much. You have to let your... Let, your let the illustrator, let the illustrator, illustrator do their job now. Tell the story in the pictures you have to trust them yeah. and and so that's an expectation for picture books that the art and the words will interact to create a third thing which is the story yeah. um kayla um yeah so i was just thinking about how one of my favorite things um in TV shows, whether mostly animation, I'll be honest, because <laughs> that's that's what I do. I like I like watching it. Okay. <laughs> um, but that in all shows, even um, one of my favorite thing to do, inter how to interact with that um, type of media is lore mining. I love to mine the background, the little things, the visual cues in the background that aren't addressed by the story. And I'm like, oh, wait, what does that mean? That nearly matches that one symbol, except it's missing half of this thing. Oh, I bet that means that their logs lost connected. I, they have to be, right? And I will just like literally talk out loud by myself, putting all of that together, lore mining the background. And I, that's my favorite thing. But you can't do that in books. Uh, yeah, Megan. I was going to say, are you a Gravity Falls fan? Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> so Gravity Falls. It's a Gravity, Gravity, Gravity Falls. Falls. Here's the way I've described, and I came to Gravity Falls late. Gravity Falls is X-Files for kids and for grown-ups who were righteously disappointed in X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, um, so well done in that way. One of the things that I want to point out about... Uh, the the differences between some of these genres 
is, uh, there are things that are pointed up by the recent and now canceled uh, live action version of Cowboy Bebop is that in the animation, the, the, the Cowboy Bebop anime, the characters are having feelings, but there's really only so much you can do with an animated face to show us a complex sequence of emotions without tipping into the uncanny valley or doing something weird. And so often what they'll do is they'll cut away from the face in the anime and show us, you know, pouring a glass of whiskey, show us the hand doing something, show us <laughs> something else in order to tell the story behind what's happening on the face. But in live action, dang it, Cho is a fantastic actor. Just give him his backstory, aim the camera at his face, let him say two lines of dialogue, and then act, and we'll have it. And that's not what they did. Meg, you were flailing about. What? <laughs> Sandra's had her hand up for such no, a long fine. time. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so there is something in filmmaking called the Kuleshov effect, which is the shot sorry, that comes... Say that again? Sorry. Uh, the Kuleshov effect. Okay, Kuleshov. And it's the idea that even if you're presented with a neutral face, the shot that comes after, what the camera looks at exactly after will inform the audience of how the person is feeling. Um, cool. And something that the animated series did that I felt the live action did not was use all of the tools in their arsenal to set their mood and story because actor's face is an incredible tool. Actor's body language. That's only one very small part of what you have to consider in any sort of film sequence. You have where the camera set, how quickly you cut, what the background noise is, what the background music is, what your lighting cues are. And there's so many different pieces um, that the original Cowboy Bebop absolutely mastered. That's that's one of the best and most solidly animated series that have ever existed. And you can't just take certain pieces of that, certain hallmarks of that, and get the same effect because yeah. a visual-only tribute isn't a real reproduction. Right. Yep. Yeah. We could clearly keep talking about this and talking about this and talking about this because genre and media as things that make promises to the audience. I mean, there's a million, there's a million of these. Um, so I think we need to cut from here straight to the homework. All right. Meg, I think I, that might be you. That is me. All right. For the homework this week, what do you plan on having your work in progress deliver? Does the genre or medium you're working in support the promise of that deliverable? If not, write out a one-page outline in which you change the genre or medium to support the promise you're making. Ooh, ooh, I like it. Mm -hmm. I like it. Um, hey, uh, this has been Writing Excuses. You have your homework. You are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Your hosts for this episode were Howard Taylor, Kayla Rivera, Sandra Taylor, and Megan Lloyd. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. The liner notes and transcripts for this episode are available at writingexcuses.com. To learn more about us, visit patreon.com slash writingexcuses. 
If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 